following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive! Welcome to Flash Gordon Minute, presenting your hosts... From Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Brad. And introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric. We're at minute 94 of Flash Gordon. Good lord, 94. Eric, how are you doing? Well, I I was just wondering something, Brad. I, I wonder what it would be like to have a gigantic banner of my face unfurled before an adoring public and just thinking of what the ego problems it would cause to have that done. Yeah, it'd be pretty profound. It'd be pretty profound. But I'll, I'll be honest, Eric, yours is a face uh, that, that should be unfurled. Uh-oh. You are a fearless leader, uh, a, a, a king among men, and uh, you know we're also real lucky to have another fantastic person who deserves to be unfurled with us. Who was our guest for this <laughs> minute again? Yep, coming back for a second day in the Flash Gordon Minute Studios, editor and publisher of FilmBuffOnline.com and the co-host of the big picture podcast, Rich Drees. Hey, good evening, guys. Great to be back for this second uh, of the three minutes I'm going to be talking with you about. Uh, Rich, it's wonderful to have you back with us. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, with uh, the last minute of Minute 93. And uh, one thing that you talked about sort of in the green room, uh, you've read and recently sort of re-reviewed this uh, in, in anticipation of joining our show the novelization of flash gordon oh yeah yeah i was um uh, i i i've had it since the movie came out um i'm i'm an old man and um i'm from that era where you got all the movie novelizations because that was the only way you could go back and see the movie again you know you kind of just reread the movie in your and in your mind's eye you remember the images and stuff like that and this one actually has, as it says on the cover, eight pages of color photos from the film. Oh, that was such a big deal. Yeah. Oh, true. Kids, you got to understand. Rich is right. Because um, I, I, I got a few years on me, too. And I remember when you did, I remember before you could rent movies. So, and even then, renting movies wasn't, you know, you wouldn't buy the you couldn't buy the VHS. Most of those VHS tapes would run 80, 90 bucks. That's 80, 90 dollars in 1980s money. Not. Oh yeah. I remember uh, in high school, a friend of mine brought it to school to show everyone that his dad had bought him uh, Batman on VHS, the, the, the Michael Keaton Batman, the first one. And I think it was going for $99 at the time. And we were all like, Whoa, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Just astounding. But, I mean, I was even remember before that where, you know, you, you would catch it in the theaters and you would try to, if you were lucky enough to have HBO, you would try to watch it on HBO and then then you would just, every now and then it might show up on TV, uh, but that would be even pretty rare. So, yeah, you would get the novel, like the novelizations used to sell really well. And then also sometimes you would have comic book adaptions if it was the right movie. Like there was always a Star Wars comic book adaption. Oh, they had, oh yeah. I mean, at, you know, a lot of. I mean, there were some weird movies that got comic book adaptations, and then you know, a lot of the genres. Of course, I remember as a kid, I had 
the Krull comic book adaptation. I had the Red Sonia comic book adaptation. Marvel put out an adaptation of Annie. <laughs> First of all, okay, I understand, you know, Annie has its origins in com- newspaper comics. That is comics. true. That is so, true. So, so that makes a certain sense. But who sat around and said, hey, let's do a comic book adaption of a musical? <laughs> well, they also, they, I had the Muppets Take Manhattan comic adaptation. Oh, cool. So, Rich, was uh, any big differences from uh, – because often th- those uh, novelizations, they want the novelization to come out at the same time, if not a little bit before the the uh, movie. So they're often going by an earlier script than what ends up being shot. Um, so there could be some really big differences. Uh, any differences that you remember uh, that really popped out at you from the, the novelization to the movie? Oh, boy. It, it's been years and by years, I mean possibly decades, since I actually read this whole thing from cover to cover. Um, I just kind of pulled it out because I wanted to kind of look over how the uh, the book handled the three minutes we were going to be talking about this week. And what surprised me was, you know, I'm kind of flipping towards the back because I know roughly where it is. And I'm like, okay, um, oh, here it is, page 201. We're at the scene from, what was it, about the 87-minute mark where – Aura and Dale are in the uh, the bedroom chamber, and Dale says, I'm lost. Nothing can save me now. That's about 20 minutes left of the movie. So you've had 80-some minutes of the movie already, over 200 pages of the book. And then literally the, the novelization ends on page 200, at the top of page 220. So they like slam through the last 20 minutes of the, of the movie in 20 pages of book really fast. And... Yeah, it's a lot of action and everything, but still, it doesn't seem like it just feels like they're rushing through it. When I was like reading this on lunch today, I was like, wow, they're just zipping right through this to get to the end. But it's an interesting and artifact of another time, I guess. Action is really tough to do in, in, in books, and that's why detective novels would do well, because that's so much about the tension and the built up and, you know, Firing one shot from your gun. How how are you going to describe a Jackie Chan fight scene? Exactly. Yeah, I think that that's a big reason why I'm I'm such a huge Star Wars geek. Yet I just I do not like the Star Wars books. They just they they've never been able to draw me in. Oh sure, yeah, it's because I mean Star Wars. The best parts are often just watching that lightsaber battle. How do you do that? Yeah, not in a novel. You can't. I've read a, a lot of Star Wars books over the years. Um, back um, in the mid-90s, uh, when I was freelancing for local paper here in the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area, I invariably was pitching to my editor, hey, can I do a book review of the new Star Wars novel, hardback novel? And a lot of them were really bad for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of reasons. Yeah, uh, you know, stuff like Courtship Princess Leia, Darksaber, um, the Crystal Sky. Oh, uh, the Truce uh, of think... Acura is the one that I really Ooh. just, uh, I couldn't, I, oh, I hated that book. Sorry if whoever wrote that is listening, but I just, I hated <laughs> that book. And, but at the same time, somebody who had like a really good foundation in um, solid, you know, science fiction, you know, hard science fiction, like Timothy Zahn wrote some great stuff that didn't depend on space battles so much. It depended on the characters and things like that that were, you know, much, you know, made those, you know, his uh, Thrawn novels, that Thrawn trilogy he wrote, uh, much more interesting to read than what other people were trying to do, trying to capture the uh, 
the pulp, you know, Saturday matinee adventure feel of Star Wars in novel form, and that just doesn't work. Right. Yeah, yeah. I um I read those Zahn novels also when they first came out, and I, I think that part of their popularity was that at that time, you youngins listening, you know, <laughs> will find this hard to believe, but the, the Star Wars was non-existent at that point. I mean, Return of the Jedi had come out, you know, maybe seven years before or so. Uh, actually... Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, seven or seven right. or eight years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there were like a couple of comic books, but really, there's just Star Wars was essentially done, and then this trilogy of books came out uh, in, in three successive summers, and they were a very big hit. And I think also they were good. I mean, they they are quality books, also. Um, and I think I really loved those three bu- books. You know, partially maybe because there had been nothing there yet, and partially because they're well written. But then after that. I, I really tried. I read several more of the books. I read a few of the compilations of the short stories, and I just, I, I said, I, I this is just, it's not doing it for me, and I just stopped. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I kind of fell away from them after a while, too. Once they kind of got too far along where they were like, okay, now Han and Leia have kids, and that will never happen in the movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, then it was like, uh, you know, this threat that comes from outside of the galaxy that uh, the force can't touch or affect or anything like that. I was like, uh, you're ju- you guys are just searching for reasons to have obstacles for the heroes instead of letting the story actually suggest the obstacles themselves. It, you know, it felt very artificial in that way. And I just was like, yeah, I'm done with these. Obviously, I, I have my affection for Star Wars, but I was never able to get into too much of the other formats uh, of it. I mean, aside from, of course, I love the uh, Christmas special. I mean, you know, I'm not made of stone. <laughs> hey, who doesn't love a good B. Arthur sing-along? I, hey, that song's my favorite part of the show. <laughs> really? I, yeah. I, even as a kid, though, I remember that Boba Fett cartoon. I was just like, what? Who's this guy? Oh, my gosh. And... You know, years later in college, stumbling across that first, the first version of the bootleg from that, uh, the holiday special that I was able to find and pay actual money for and everything. And I brought it back to, it was like on a weekend at some convention. I brought it back and like that Sunday night, we all convened in my friend's dorm room because he was the only one with a TV and a VCR. And we're all like, immediately, let's just fast forward to the Boba Fett thing. The hell with everything else. Let's just, I want to see that again. I haven't seen it in 10 years. It's always about the fat. Of course. Oh, very cool. Well, but, you know, we're going to leave that. Obviously, I'm sure the Star Wars guy's minute. But uh, we're, we're, we're coming back to Flash. We're at minute 94. Uh, Eric, what happens in this minute? Well, uh, everybody enters through the big hole made by the explosion that we all questioned yesterday on uh, what its purpose was. So they're inside. Uh, Voltan uh, brings uh, Flash with them one way sends uh, Luro and other Hawkman another way. Uh, so now we have infiltrated uh, War Rocket Ajax. And I, 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 there's, there's a shot here where one of the Hawkmen runs by the army room, tosses in a grenade, runs off and explodes. And uh, I've always thought that was a really cool shot, just of him you know, running by, chucking it in, moving on, the, the bomb going off. That's, that's a nice shot that uh, uh, I thought they pulled off there. Uh, then they make it into the control room, of War Rocket Ajax before they get in. So the Captain of Ming's Air Force orders full velocity all drive. Now, we discussed this 
uh, on the previous episodes uh, a week or two ago how I, I didn't understand why War Rocket Ajax was stopping, that I felt they should have just kept going and plowed right through the Hawkman, that stopping actually allowed the Hawkman to land on it, and it made no sense. So now I'm not understanding why the captain is ordering them to speed up because now the Hawkmen are on the ship. They're inside the ship. Speeding up accomplishes absolutely nothing. So clearly I was right. He never should have stopped in the first place. <laughs> I don't really think they do too much uh, good work at whatever the Mongo equivalent of West Point is. Because <laughs> the, the military tactics on display in this movie are questionable at best. I mean, obviously Ming soldiers have been terrible. <laughs> there is some scenes in this, though, where... And, and it, I think it goes back to just how ter- how awful those Hawkman costumes must be, where they just seem to be stumbling about uh, around a bit, uh, because I just think they're really uncomfortable. They probably can't bend over to look down and see where they're going. It's a little bit of uneven terrain, but... uh. You know, yeah, it's it's not military per, uh, precision. I noticed uh, in one of these minutes that we talked about this week, I'm trying to remember which one it was, where the the, the main soldiers are marching. It's like they're not in very good marching formation. You can see like they're they're not spaced out evenly. It's like oh, this... oh yeah, that's that's tomorrow's episode. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I have a couple of notes on that already. Part of it is these are wildly uncomfortable, bulky costumes. Some of which are blocking people's vision. It's like uh, and then also you just is what happens when you hire actors to play uh, soldiers, which I. I assume that's most of the case. Maybe they were able to get a local London battalion to uh, do some extra work, but uh, I'm thinking that's not the case. That's why you're always hearing about uh, with these when they have these war movies that you, you always find out uh, they sent the, the the cast to you know like some one week boot camp or something like that to get them to see what it's really like. Who was it? Uh, R. Lee Emery. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He got his big break because uh, what was it? Full Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Uh, and he was decorated soldier, and he was just basically brought in to uh, be an advisor, but this the, the actor actually hired to do the role uh, wasn't very good at yelling at everyone, and Harley Emery just walked up and started yelling at people, which just seemed like his natural state, <laughs> cursing at people, and he was so great that it was like, well, we're just going to give him the role. And had a wonderful career based on that. Oh, yeah. Usually playing some sort of military or enforcement guy because uh, not necessarily good range. But, um, all right, so very cool. But what, what else do we got here in Minute 94? Well, so then uh, they uh, they blast their way into the control room. Uh, everybody's going down. Biro comes in, starts stabbing a sol- soldier. And, and much like yesterday where we weren't sure uh what noises Voltan was making i don't know what the hell biro is doing he's making some kind of really weird noises as he's stabbing this soldier and i don't know if he's saying something or if he's just like going uh, uh, I, 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 but it just i listened to about five times and i have no idea what noises are coming out of that dude's mouth no, yeah uh, yeah uh, i don't even know where to follow up on that <laughs> This sort of leads into, so, so then we have a real drastic change of pace. Yes. It's wedding, It's a wedding day, and uh, as you point out, Eric, apparently somebody went to Kinko's. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Kala, General Kala announces the unveiling of the face of the Empress-to-be, a.k.a. our pal Dale Arden, back in Ming's Grand Hall. <laughs> it's, uh, you, I, uh, I, you know... 
when did she pose for that photo and how did they make it so fast? <laughs> and and I want to give some uh, some credit to uh, uh, Kala's 1950s circa Buddy Holly microphone. Oh my god, I love that <laughs> microphone so much. I know. It's it's a lovely condenser microphone. I have a similar one that we use on the podcast sometimes. It gives a great tone, but it was just like everything is so wonderfully otherworldly stylized <laughs> in the movie. To see something so blatantly earth tech like that in the middle in the middle of all of this is just a little weird. It just a little takes me out of it just a little bit at that time. You're you're waiting for Frank Sinatra to walk up and start crooning into it. <laughs> Young, skinny, 1940s Frank Sinatra. Hey, everybody, it's going to be a wedding coming down. So get on over here or I'll knock you on your ice. <laughs> the microphone, I have a note on the microphone to my, also. And what's crazy is, and it's it looks great. It looks great. I love it. The shot is, you know, beautifully composed. Kyle has this amazing face, and it's a great close-up, and the microphone looks wonderful. There's just a thousand different ways they could have gone, and I love the way they went. But they also could have gone something really alien and crazy um, instead of a microphone. It, it, it's it's sort of a sort of a gutsy choice. I I, I like it, but uh, it, it, I bet somebody had to do some convincing to make it happen, or maybe not. Maybe at this point they're so burnt out, it's like just get a microphone. Should we should we uh, add that to our lazy prop work uh, tally that we've been keeping track of? Yeah, I think we gotta. I think we gotta. I think it looks great. Now I know I just criticized the choice of the microphone, but at the same time, you know, and I'm thinking maybe they just used an you know an obvious looking microphone so people will know it's an it's a microphone as opposed to. Um, you know, some weird stick with G-Jaws and everything sticking out of it um, for people to go, wait, what the hell is she talking into? And then, you know, it's just it, it's just kind of like a visual shorthand just so to help people through to go, oh, okay, it's a microphone. She's making this announcement. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I like it. They, they could have done different stuff. They could have just done something even as simple as her just – and I think this is what they did. If memory serves – you actually hear her talking over the PA system before you actually see her talking into the microphone. Yes. Yeah. So I think if you establish that they're hearing her over the PA and then just saw her talking, even without a microphone or anything, you, you already know that that's happening. I don't know. I, I would love to know how much thought was put into this because maybe there was a whole discussion and meetings and you know showing different microphones or you know maybe they took less time talking about it than we have just spent talking about it <laughs> that's true and you don't know with this movie you know maybe that shot order was determined in the uh in the editing room that you hear her on the public address system before you see her speaking maybe they thought maybe we'll have a shot of her first and then the public address system you know the people reacting and hearing her on the speakers so you never know they, they fixed it in post <laughs> yes i well i just recently um uh i've been producing a short film for um actually for my podcast co-host you know she wrote and directed this uh short film and uh, we just kind of wrapped up filming recently so I've gone back and anything I've watched over the last couple of months, I've suddenly had this very different way of looking at every editing choice, every camera angle, every everything, just about going, huh, I wonder if it was because, you know, and really thinking about stuff like that. And 
a lot of times looking at edits and going, I wonder how that looked in the editing room before they came to this. So even even now, when I'm watching this, I was like, well, maybe they flipped those two shots at first. Who knows? It's always um, funny that look behind the curtain when you're doing something creative as opposed to just enjoying something creative where you don't realize there's a thousand different reasons, decisions that are made aside from just making something good. Um, I wrote a play a few years back um, and it was submitted to a, a playwrights festival and I got feedback and there was one minor character and uh, one of the feedbacks I got is like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how I feel about uh, Wanda. Why was she there? What is she, you know, she just sort of shows up and she's in the one scene and she's sort of funny and then, then you don't see her again until the very end. And it's like, you know, well, what makes this character tick? And... The reason the character was in there is because it was a long one-act play, and there was a scene where another character had to change from, <laughs> had to change into a wedding dress. It's like I gotta give, I really, I, I had to give that actress five minutes to change, you know, five to ten minutes to change into a different outfit. It's like I need a scene without her in it, and so the guy. You know, I'm getting this criticism. It's like, oh, well, you know, you didn't go deep enough in the characters. Like, she's just there for a costume change. I needed an excuse to have the main <laughs> actress off. <laughs> oh, that's great. One of the iconic scenes um, or pieces of the Star Trek franchise that I think about in these minutes is how it was too difficult and too expensive in the original TV show to show the Starship Enterprise landing on a planet. So that's why they had the teleporter. That's why they beamed them down to the center because it's just a lot cheaper and a lot easier to have that uh, transport, uh, you know, that that effect than trying to land the ship, and it works great. But that was really just done because it's too expen. It was too expensive then to land the Enterprise, and it would, you know, it, they don't need to spend five minutes of each episode showing it landing so they can, you know, wander around the planet. And you know, you don't think about that, but yeah, that's a great piece of that franchise just completely based on necessity oh yeah that that's another thing i learned uh, on this short film is you know sometimes your vision has to be flexible enough <laughs> to the realities of filmmaking can we get this shot can we not get this shot how do you want to do this okay how do we get the same story information conveyed by doing it a different way than we originally envisioned. And uh, this, these minutes, they could have used that a little bit because the Hawkman landing looks awkward. Uh, Flash, when he hops off his uh, sky cycle onto, it looks, it's actually really weird because he's just slowly drifting by and hopping off. It's like, eh, that looks weird. But, you know, it, it, some, uh, some teleporting might have helped. But I, <laughs> I still love this movie, so... It, 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 it actually wouldn't be itself if it wasn't like a bunch of like guys who can barely move because they have 50 pounds of wing on the back of them, like belly sliding onto a set. Now, now I want to ask you guys about the wedding march here. You're both married, correct? Yeah. Okay. Did you suggest using this wedding march in your <laughs> ceremony? Okay, so... Uh... <laughs> We're jumping the gun here. I was going to save this for when we hear the wedding march, uh, uh, actually hear the traditional uh, march in the movie. But since you're asking, I will answer the question. Okay. I actually did suggest it to my wife to mm -hmm. walk into no. that, to, to that song. Uh, I did it half tongue-in-cheek, half serious. Um, she took me seriously and thought I really was asking to do it. And she said quite earnestly you know is that you know do you really 
think you know that that would work? Do you really want to walk into that song? And I then was like, you know, had a, in a, in my head was like, oh, I can't, I can't make her walk into you know Queen performing the Flash Gordon wedding march uh, in, into our, our wedding. So I said, no, 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 no. Well, we we we, we don't, we, you know, don't worry, we we won't do that. We won't do that. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, I I did actually suggest it. You're always really damn cool, Eric. You're always really damn cool. <laughs> well, she did. The one, the one thing I did get was we did play uh, uh, as part of the dancing music during the reception. Uh, we did play the Cantina song number one from Star Wars. Uh, although I told the DJ specifically to play the movie, and she played the Miko version, which really Ugh. pissed me off. You have a great wife. <laughs> Eric and I are both uh, lucky. We both have wonderful wives who are uh, very understanding of our uh, our little foibles, uh, loving Flash Gordon and other genre films way too much. <laughs> well, uh, my ex-wife uh, was very understanding of my movie love and stuff like that, and part of our wedding was movie-themed. But when we hit upon that, though, she did kind of say, but before I could even suggest it, but no Flash Gordon wedding march. <laughs> like, oh, come on. I promise I won't call you my empress of the hour. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. That's a, that's yeah. th- th- That would be a bad start. Well, as the banner of Dale is unfurled, uh, the Mongoloid chant, Hail Ming, Hail Ming, not Hail Dale. Um, even though, you know, Kyle is announcing, here's your new empress, here's her face, but they all chant Hail Ming. Um but I also noticed, and I went back and I listened to it again to make sure my ears weren't playing tricks on me, but it really sounds like they're saying Heil Ming, not Hail Ming, and I wondered if either of you noticed that also. Yeah. 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 Because it, throughout the movie, it's been Hail Ming, and in here, it definitely sounds like they're saying Heil Ming. Yeah. I, I sort of caught that, too, and, uh, you know, you, you can't have a Ming-like emperor without there being some you're gonna have some nazi stuff you, you just are <laughs> it's hard to have a dictator uh bad guy without it. it's like oh you, well, let's just let's just throw some uh you know nazi stuff you know, so, somebody watched was it triumph of the spirit triumph of the will that triumph of the will Lini rife install right yeah well you know well admit i mean you know earlier in the movie we do get uh, when they're erasing Zarkov's mind and they show Hitler and Clytus says, oh, you know, he showed promise. So Clytus is a fan. I wonder if before he died, did Clytus institute some new rule that you don't say Hailming anymore? You say Heilming because he was so impressed. Yeah, I, I, I'm coming up. That, that's a no prize right off the top of my head. Be, be great. Uh, if, if that was the last thing he like left a will is like, oh, hey, here's his greatest <laughs> hits. And um, also, if I recall correctly, in the 1982 um, Filmation f- animated Flash Gordon series, that two-hour premiere thing that they had, um, there was like this mention that Ming was helping Hitler or something like that. I, I seem to recall that, and it's been years since I've since I watched that, so I might be confusing something and you know with something else in the back of my mind. But I remember it started off in World War II in Poland like right at the beginning of the Nazi invasion and flash, you know, is a U.S. spy behind enemy lines. He meets Dale Arden and then they, you know, encounter Zarkov and off they go, you know, but it's like I said, it's been years since I've watched that. So I'd have, I don't want to hold myself to a hundred percent on that one. Right. 
you know, as we go from minute 93 into minute 94, there, the, the transition between Queen's music to a more orchestral sound happens right across that, that time frame there. And it's so smooth and seamless. I didn't even think about it, you know, the first couple of times I was rewatching, you know, these specific minutes. And then it was, you know, I know you guys have always been talking about the music. Uh, so I went back and I was like, oh, wait a minute. We're, you know, definitely, mu- you know, minute 93 is, you know, heavy queen music. And then, but once we get into 94, we're suddenly got strings and it's a lot more orchestral sounding. And it just kind of blends so seamlessly together. Again, you guys talking about how queen were perfect for this project and that just that transition there is a great example as to why yeah well actually that those strings that is actually that is not queen that's back to our old pal howard blake Mm -hmm. uh this is howard blake number 40 uh those very foreboding strings that kick in in the last few seconds of this episode and then uh continue into uh tomorrow's episode um uh I'll I'll leave the I'll leave the I'll I'll leave what the, what happens tomorrow for tomorrow's but yes uh and actually I might add it's been 13 minutes Brad since our previous Howard Blake music we had a long stretch here with no Howard Blake that's too long without Howard Blake <laughs> we, we, we love Howard Blake he he did a magnificent job uh, it's such a great mix of he was very good at um you know basically taking his cues from Queen and Queen also being so excellent because. They're a rock band, but they're a rock band that has a wonderful classical music uh, feel to them. So the transition is very clean. And uh, I, I remember one of the most jarring examples of going from orchestra to, you know, modern music. The, the movie Twister, uh, the uh, Helen Hunt, uh, Bill Paxton uh, summer blockbuster. As they're chasing the storm and they're having the big, uh, you know, boisterous orchestra music. And then it turns out it then transferred to the Van Halen song, Human Being, which I think was like the last Sammy Hagar single from Van Halen. Terrible song. Uh, <laughs> terrible song. And also just so jarring because so jarring because Van Halen couldn't have been in, couldn't have been any more of a rock band. And the, the transfer didn't go well. And uh, that stuff is always jarring. And it, it feels so shoehorned in where they're trying to just sell some soundtracks and find a way to focus on the, the, the popular band song for the soundtracks. That isn't what happened in this scene and in this movie. They're, you know, Queen's the right music for the right time. And they, you know, with Howard Blake, they found the right, the, the perfect um composer to find music that would blend in so seamlessly so yeah this is and it's a little thing and it's the sort of thing that you only notice when you're doing this minute by minute one other thing i noticed too like about 12 seconds into this minute uh once they've blown the hole in the side of ajax and they're coming in and they're in that room with the the weird hemispheres that are glowing <laughs> there's one angle that's kind of at a dutch angle to everything else Usually the director has been shooting everything kind of like straight on, um, you know, camera being just, you know, making sure it's very uh, horizontal. But, you know, this one definitely feels like a Dutch angle. It's a low angle. It's looking up. It's where, you know, Voltan tosses Flash the grenade. And it just kind of stuck out to me. It's like, why ever, you know, that he just goes to this Dutch angle for this one shot 
when it kind of feels just like very out of context to the rest of the style he's been shooting the film in. Um, I, I, it's you know, it's more of a comment than a question, which yeah, is the worst I'm, thing I'm you will ever it. hear I, somebody I say. But yeah, I think there was a couple of tricks. He must have just been saving some tricks to make this scene feel special. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be you know. Uh, trying to give a disorienting feel that you know they're they're entering they don't know exactly maybe where to go they're, they're splitting up there's fire going so maybe it just adds a bit to the sort of confusion of the scene okay i i pulled that one right off the top of my head <laughs> <laughs> well you know this is a big climactic action scene where and, and we've talked about it before some awkward action um guys in uncomfortable suits that are blocking their vision running around and you know, it's so if you can add some, make the viewer feel a little disoriented and make it sort of feel like there's more going on than there might actually be, uh, that's a win. That's a win. Just wanted to point out, we end this minute in the middle of a line from Kala. She says, all channels will display for your entertainment. And then the, the minute ends. So we have to wait for tomorrow to find out what she's going to say and discuss that. But it made me wonder, though, how many channels are there in Mingo City, and what usually is on those channels? I mean, it's this is a you know authoritarian dictatorship here with a very evil leader. I mean, you know, she says channels, and she says all channels, implying they've got to be at least a, you know four or five. Uh, what what gets shown on the Mingo City TV channels? Are are there? NBC equivalents? Are there PBS equivalents? Are there Comedy Central equivalents? Uh, you know, you don't have to necessarily answer. I just, uh, just made me think of that. I'm just thinking uh, reruns of the. Uh, oh, then it would be new episodes of Benson. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, in his previous visit, he just loves Robert Guillaume. <laughs> so, so are there new episodes of Benson? You know, beyond where the series ended, that we saw here on Earth, because. I want to know, did he win that governor's race or not that they ended on a cliffhanger? Yeah, well, you know, remember, this came out in 80. That's true. Actually, mm-hmm. it might not have been Benson. He may, they might have been running Soup. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was the show before Benson, right? Soup? Soap. 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 Not Soap. Soup. <laughs> oh, boy. Damn it. I'd say I fixed this in post, but I ain't going to fix this Don't in you post. dare edit that out, Brad. <laughs> And, of course, Soap featured a character who was kidnapped by aliens, much like Flash and Dale and yeah. Zargoth. They might be showing Soap. That would be awesome. It's like, yeah, that's, she's going to be Mona on uh, – look who's talking – I mean, uh, who's the boss the later? Boss. Look who's mm-hmm. talking – Brad, what is going on with you today? Wow. We've, been, we've done 94 of these. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Very good. Uh, that's a good call out. Uh, all right. Well, Rich, this has been another fantastic minute. Um, please uh, let people know where they can hear, uh, read and hear more from you. If they want to read what I have to say, uh, that would be at filmbuffonline.com, where uh, we update daily with uh, latest movie news, uh, some reviews, feature articles. Uh, we try to put some of the movie news into a bit of a historical context where appropriate. And uh, you can hear this wonderful voice of mine with uh, my co-host, Natasha Bogutsky, on the Big Picture Podcast. Um, We've actually taken a couple of weeks off while we were working on uh, aforementioned short film project. uh, But we will be returning to the air this week. uh, And there we also discuss recent news, 
talk about uh, recently released trailers, review either a new film or sometimes we take a look back at a classic film and see if it holds up. Uh, recently for that, we've done Clerks and um, the Pal and Pressburger film The Red Shoes. So that kind of gives you an idea of the wide range of movies we like to discuss on there and uh, try to you know pull it all together and see what kind of sense we can make out of everything. Very cool. By the way, what a wonderful name your co-host has, Natasha Bogutsky. That's a name that demands respect. It does. It does. And if you don't give it to her, well, she'll make sure you, you she gets it. Uh, Eric, where can people find out more about our little slice of the internet? Well, uh, come hang out with us on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex or on Twitter. We are Flash Gordon Pod or send us an email, flashgordonminute at gmail.com. Uh, we ask for your range reviews in iTunes. The more people that, uh, the more range reviews we get, the better visibility we get, and the more people that can share in the fun. Um, you know, Eric, this has been another fun-filled minute. Uh, I'm looking forward to finishing strong tomorrow. Um, and again, I, I don't know about you, but Eric, I'm feeling really good. Yeah, I'm okay. I know I was worried last week, but I'm not worried this week anymore. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, we, we have such wonderful listeners that are following us, including a uh, the fantastic KJ Valencic. Uh, it, he has a concern. It, it was... Uh, he shared it on our listeners' the listeners' vortex. Uh, it was in the form of a cartoon from the website XKCD, uh, basically talking about how, sort of paraphrasing here, but it's been you know so many years since the first Jurassic Park, and uh, you know KJ sort of still goes into houses, uh, you know, thinking about how vulnerable it would be to Velociraptor attacks, uh, and he seems to be pretty worried about it. Uh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I've never walked into a home and, and been concerned about a dinosaur eating me. I mean, it's KJ, it's been 65 million years, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not around anymore, but if suddenly some crazy scientist does discover that Amber and gets some cloning going on in a science lab and, and decides to breed the most vicious, ferocious, uh, evil dinosaur there is instead of the nice and gentle triceratops or something like that and and if said dinosaurs find their way through the, your window waiting you in the dark in your closet to jump out at you and eat you kj don't worry flesh will save every one of us attention listeners you can follow us on twitter at flash gordon pod and join the conversation on facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. Stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute. Can't seem to get you off my